Can I trust the Bible? That's our brand new series that we are starting today. And I couldn't be more excited about it. Welcome to High Point. My name is Andy. I'm the lead pastor here at High Point Church. Thrilled to be here with you today. And in case uh, you, I don't think you would have missed it, but I'm going to remind you, just in case you did, that all the things uh, that Jason just mentioned, you can get all the information by texting, like a phone number, start a new text thread, put in 97000 and type the words HPINFO to it, and you get all the stuff, all the things, all the, all the, the information that's happening in the church. We update it regularly, and here's, I'm going to echo it again because I want to stress it. Uh, this next week is a big week. God's Not Dead is going to be a big event for us. And we couldn't be more excited to really engage with people and answer some of the questions like the ones we're beginning to address even today with Can I Trust the Bible? People have big questions about faith, big questions about God. And we need to rally as a church and serve and serve the campus and volunteer because I promise you we're going to see some students put their faith in Jesus in the next week. And that is exciting stuff. Is anybody pumped about the possibility of people coming to faith? Yes, you can put your hands together. In fact, put your hands together. We should be excited about that. You know why we're excited about it? Because God has not called us to come and sit and be spectators. That is not the calling that is on your life or our church's life. We are called to engage our community, to engage our campuses, to engage young people, families, neighborhoods, communities with the gospel. And it just so happens that we've got a big one this coming week. So rather than being passive about it, oh, that sounds great. Take the initiative. Carve out some time and join me Monday through Thursday anytime next week. We're going to hit the campus, and you don't have to be trained on, you don't, you don't have to know how to share the gospel in two minutes with somebody. You're going to have people who ignore you. That happened to me last week. That's how it goes. You walk around, and we're literally going to be passing out flyers, and guess what happens? All of a sudden, you'll find somebody who says, this is exactly what I need. I'm wrestling with whether God's even real. When is it? Can I give you my phone number? Can you text me? Can you give me all the info? Would you pray for me? It's incredible. That's what we want. I believe that's what God has for us as a church. Amen? Amen. Guys, we're going to pray, and then we're going to get straight into it. Sound good? Father, thank you for today, Lord, where we get to, by faith, grow. We get to press into the Bible we get to press into your, your presence. We get to take a step in today. Lord, we are not staying put. We're not staying seated, figuratively speaking. We are taking a step in to grow in our knowledge of you and to encounter your presence today. Lord, meet us here. Minister to our hearts. Amen. 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 We're talking about the Bible today, ladies and gentlemen, in the next couple weeks. It is the best-selling book of all time, and nothing else even comes close. 
Even though Harry Potter had a good run, it doesn't touch the Bible. Topping in, uh, coming in at over 5 billion copies sold. The Bible is the single most sold book of all time. It is the book that is in greatest demand. There are still nations that have banned the Bible. There are people who have given their life for the Bible to be translated. People who have given their very lives to ship and bring Bibles into countries that have banned it and outlawed it. It is, it is desired more than anything else from the matter of a text. It's banned. It's been under scrutiny. People are angry about it. In uproar over what it has to say. Controversial. Convicting. It has also inspired more art, more poems, more paintings than any other book on the planet. If we were to take all the museums of the world and literally put them next to each other, there would not be enough room to house all of the art, simply the art, that has been inspired by the beauty of the words in the Bible. It's inspired revolutions. People literally began hospitals because of the Bible. Universities have been created because of the Bible. The very system of the university structure that's in our country was inspired because of the scriptures. And yet not everyone loves the Bible, as you very well know. And even though you have access to it with the snap of a finger, with the reading of a phone, it doesn't mean that you read it. It doesn't mean that you value it. It doesn't mean that you understand really how we even got to this thing that we have called the Bible. And many times when we have these conversations, maybe with somebody who's not a believer or not a Christian, or maybe yourself as you're wrestling with, did this really happen? The extent of our knowledge when it comes to the scriptures is, well, my mom told me this, or my dad told me this, or I grew up going to church, and therefore it must be true. But as a culture moves further and further away from generationally growing up in church, guess what answers do not satisfy them or you very well? Well, it's true because the Bible says it's true. Well, if you don't trust the Bible, that response doesn't mean diddly. Are you with me this morning? So over the next several weeks, I am, am, am doing something I've never done before on a Sunday morning. We're going to give you reasons to believe and trust that the Bible is in fact God's word for you. I'm going to say that one more time. What we aim to do is going to be a different kind of a series. Today is going to be a very different kind of message. I am, our mission at High Point Church is to follow Jesus in heart, mind, and action. And today, and in the next couple weeks, we're going to appeal to a very specific part of that mission statement, and that would be your mind. Because many of us have grown up believing that science and the Bible cannot coexist. Or that somehow to be intelligent, 
or to somehow be a Christian or to put your faith in Jesus, you've got to check your brain at the door. I have had friends who've come to faith over the years, but their biggest obstacle to coming to faith was that they literally thought Christians were dumb. They thought Christians discounted dinosaurs. <laughs> that somehow to become a Christian, you couldn't believe in, in fossils or any, 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 any kind of evolution even. And I don't mean macroevolution in this particular case. In case you're wondering what I believe on that. I do not believe that we ascended from a lobster. Okay, I believe God created man and woman. But there are things that you can see culturally and scientifically we call microevolution. Shifts, changes. To be a Christian does not mean that you have to dismiss your brain at the door. It doesn't mean that you have to get rid of all intelligence. In fact, when we open the Bible and you allow God's written word to really speak to you, it's amazing the truth that this book holds. Bear with me. In fact, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. As you're turning there in your Bible, you'll notice I've got my, my paper Bible with me today. I want to encourage you and remind you to start bringing a Bible with you. Bring a notebook with you. I am going to fire hose you with information today. I mean, I'm Ghostbuster, Proton Pack. I'm about to spray this room with things today. It's a different kind of message, okay? I am giving you as many reasons for you to be able to take your spiritual hooks and put them into something and grasp the validity of these texts. That this isn't just a couple fairy tales, a few myths, that you can actually trust it. You guys with me today? These kinds of messages helped me as someone who was very young in my faith. In California in the late 70s, uh, there were some kids that were playing in their yard. This is the west side of Los Angeles. You can look this up on Google if you want. And as these two kids are playing and they're digging in their yard, that's what kids do. And they're digging and they all of a sudden clink, clink, clink. They discover metal and they're they're, they're digging around it, and they discover lots of metal. And all of a sudden, they begin to put together the pieces, and it looks like there's a car buried in their backyard. So they flag down a police officer who's doing patrol in the neighborhood, and the police officer comes, and sure enough, and so they, they, they bring all these people out, and they start to dig this out. And what do they find in near-perfect condition? but a Ferrari buried in the backyard of their house. They'd put towels in the tailpipe. Clearly, this was like some stolen car that somebody was coming back for. And these kids found it, a treasure of unknown value in their yard. When we read the Bible, I want you to get this image in your mind that Imagine yourself like a child who's got a shovel, who's digging in the yard. And when it comes to mining out the gold, the value of this scripture, sometimes you don't even know what you're getting until you finally start hearing that clinking sound. 
There is treasure in this word. You don't always know what you're coming to get. You don't always know how God's going to speak to you. But the Bible itself is God's revelatory word that reveals his glory to you and to me. And there is treasure in it. So this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says that all Scripture... Not just the Old Testament. He knew what was happening even with the letters that they were writing. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now we can talk about what scripture is useful for. But if we don't settle on what scripture first is... You're never really going to grasp what it's for. The Bible is God-breathed. You may have a Bible that says that it's, God's in, it's, it's inspired, if you, depending on what translation. That's the true root word here, inspiration. Did you know that inspire means to breathe in and exhale? That's what it means to be inspired. And so if I were to walk out, uh, to Red Top Mountain and go for a, a nice stroll, and I were to see a, a landscape view, I get to the top of a hill and I look out, and it steals my breath away. And I'm inspired by what I see. I breathe it in. And then true inspiration then says, I'll take my paintbrush, and what I have breathed in, I will now breathe out. But I'm breathing it out through my paintbrush and my canvas. That's how inspiration works. Some of you love to dance. Some of you love music. Some of you just love your work. And you find yourself inspired by literally other businessmen or other businesswomen. You read a book and you're inspired. You have breathed in what someone else has done and you've breathed it back out onto some other forum. Some other environment. When the Bible says that, the, that God's word is inspired, God does not find inspiration from you and me. He literally breathes in of himself the perfect and fullness of his own glory, and then he breathes it out so that God's word is the representation of his glory for you and I. He's not drinking in you or me or how I lived my day or the book that I write and I sell on Amazon that somehow has inspired God and therefore he is going to put that inspiration into, into work and make the Bible. No, 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 no. He drinks of his own character and breathes it out into the written word and it is the perfect representation of his glory. When we understand words and what they mean, it takes on greater significance. This word is God-breathed, and it reveals his glory. Now, I can tell you that, and you can say, well, my pastor said it, so therefore it must be true. Which you should say, because, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, don't say that. <laughs> Just because I said it doesn't make it true. So when we talk about the Bible, yes, circular reasoning 
has us understanding that God's word is inspired. But what does that inspiration, how does that play out? What does that look like practically in the Bible? What do other sources have to say about the Bible? Get out your pens today if you've got one. Or this is going to be a moment for you. Open up your notes app because it's about to get crazy in here. By the way, I forgot to even mention these passages. I should have. Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And what did he do? It says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He breathed. And the man became a living being. God breathed life into man. Jesus, peace be with you. This is John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. We see God's breath at work. And when his breath is at work, we see life happening. He breathed and man became alive from the dust of the ground. He breathed again and man was regenerated even in the midst of his own sin. And the Bible says that when God breathed, he breathed his inspiration, the same word, into the Bible itself. Pretty amazing. When God breathes, he breathes life. Bible says that Hebrews 4.12, the word of God, it's alive and it's active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Is it the kind of book that somehow you're in sin because you, you left it on the floor and some coffee got on it? No. But many times the opposite is also true for us that we're so saturated with the Bible we're so inundated with access to it that we forget how incredible this Bible really is. Let's look at history for a minute. Anybody have to read Plato in college? Anybody have to read? Anybody see the quotes that go around on social media that has the occasional Aristotle? You know, the, the occasional Plato, the philosopher. We've all seen different things. You can literally buy books, written manuscripts that have been put together of Plato, of Aristotle, and, and these, these men of greatness, right, of old. Ancient writers, Homer. Sophocles. These are the books of antiquity that we have discovered. And when you read them in your school, when you read them in high school or middle school, you read them in college, you know what no one is doing? No one is questioning their integrity. Because we know that the book that we're reading, the manuscripts that we've put together, are accurate. But track with me here. Plato is one of the oldest documents that we have. We have discovered seven manuscripts in ancient history that are attributed to Plato. Seven. That's not many. Aristotle, we have found through archaeological study, 49 manuscripts. 49. Getting better. We found 49 things with his name on it. Sophocles, the great philosopher, 193 manuscripts. Now we're getting somewhere. 
193 ancient texts that we have found. I don't mean they're all different books. I mean translations. Someone found the original and it has been penned and rewritten 193 times. And we found those different documents buried. We found them in homes. We found them in jars and mason jars buried in the ground. 193. And then you get to some other documents like Homer's Iliad. How many of you have had to read the Iliad? Come on, raise your hand. Is this literally all? Not many? I had to read the Iliad, and I nearly died trying to read it. Okay? Homer's Iliad is one of the greatest pieces of ancient antiquity writing that we have in existence. And we have discovered 643 copies of the Iliad throughout ancient history. And do you know what is unheard of? is that the level of translation accuracy over 643 ancient manuscripts is 95%. That means that all the archaeologists or scientists or whoever does all this, we found all 643 and we lay them out. Imagine a table that you could put 643 manuscripts on. And someone is proofreading it with their pen. And they're looking for inconsistencies across all 643. And this sounds like the worst job in the world, doesn't it? Of course, you're like, oh gosh, I'll do anything but that. And after comparing all 643 manuscripts, which by the way, that, the number that we have found of that is, that is extraordinarily high. And as that number rises, you would expect the accuracy rate to do what? To go down. Because you have that many more copies that you found buried in the earth. Surely someone has made a mistake. And over the course of history, over 643 manuscripts, we have a translation accuracy of 95%. Nothing even comes close except one the new testament we have discovered an unheard of 5686 manuscripts that's just the greek we're not talking about latin versions we're not talking about other languages we're not talking, well, we're literally just talking about the Greek, and we have 5,686 manuscripts that we've discovered. Nothing even remotely comes close to the amount of things that we have all screaming New Testament. Now imagine our big, giant, long table. You're not putting 643 on it now. You're putting close to 6,000 out there, right? And you're laying them all out. You'd have to put them on the floor and just one after the other and one after the other. I tried to think of a way to visually illustrate this to you. I don't even have a good visual illustration that I could fit on the stage to make this work right. 5,600 manuscripts with someone looking for all the errors and inconsistencies and over 5,600 
Greek versions of letters of the New Testament, the translation accuracy for the New Testament is 99.5% accurate. 99.5. How is that possible? And what is that 0.5% that's not right? If you do the homework, most of it is changes in the way words are spelled. There's theater with R-E, and then there's theater, E-R. And you see over time in the New Testament that as scribes are writing this out, they've changed a couple of the way the words are spelled. Are there a couple little things and hiccups in there? Of course. But in the manner of 0.5%, which means this to you. You don't have to believe what the Bible says. When you're talking to a friend and they say to you, oh, we don't even have the same Bible that they had back then. How do we know it's not corrupted? Surely somebody jacked it up. Somebody went to work and changed the story, changed the names. I mean, come on. How can you possibly trust that? I have great news for you. You do not have to be a Christian to trust the accuracy of the Bible. You may not believe its contents. But you are denying factual history archaeology, science, and all the other things that say that the New Testament is what's called pure. Meaning the words that you and I are reading when you open your Bible are the words that were written to those in those letters to those churches. You are getting the true Bible, the true letters, and no one has monkeyed with it. And I believe God, because this is his revelatory word to you and to me, I believe there is grace on the Bible, even as it's translated. We didn't even talk about the 19,000 other texts in different languages of the New Testament. Just the New Testament. And the translation accuracy still holds true. The New Testament is the most discovered and most accurate piece of writing, literally, in ancient history. Why is that? Well, I believe it's because it's God-breathed, and it reveals His glory. That's why. The Bible says it's God-breathed, and it's useful for this. You've got to understand, when God breathes on something, there is power in that very thing. But how about this? We're going to get some we're going to get some Bible lessons today. How's that? Because the the Bible teaches us about a lot of things. The Bible is not a science book, okay? If you're listening on the podcast today, maybe you're driving in your car as you're reading this, get ready. Because I'm getting ready to just move quickly through uh, some some verses here and some truths that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us about the universe, Job 26, 7. Uh, Job, this is one of the oldest books in the entire Bible. It says that he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. 
And he suspends the earth over what? Over nothing. Now you read this and you think to yourself, okay, um, great. I know about space. But when people were reading the Bible and thousands of years ago, they literally thought that Atlas was holding the earth up. They literally thought in different religions that a giant elephant was plodding along and the earth was riding on its back. Good times. But the Bible speaks and supports what we have discovered through science. That God hung the earth and he hung it on nothing. Space. Job 38, 31 says, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? We're talking about a book of the Bible that's thousands of years old. Crucifixion is 2,000 years old. Job, we're looking at potentially 3,000, 3,500, encroaching on 4,000 years old. Talking about constellations. What's also interesting about these particular constellations, that the Pleiades, that constellation, those stars are literally bound together by gravity. Orion's belt is spreading because the gravitational pull cannot keep those stars together. And here is God speaking to Job, and he literally says to him, can you bind the chain of the Pleiades, or can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you do what I've done? I don't think so. Pretty amazing. Bible teaches us about our planet. The earth uh, is not flat, but it is round. Isaiah 40, 22. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. Even in the book of Isaiah, we have us, we, the word is pointing us to a world that is circular, spherical, at a time when many people thought the earth was flat. There are still some people who think the world is flat. We'll pray for them. Back to Job 38. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? We couldn't confirm any of this. We didn't know what was in the depths of the sea. We didn't even have equipment to get us deep enough until the mid-70s. And you know what we found? More than just rivers and streams and rivulets pouring into the oceans to fill uh, the oceans up with water, which is what we thought for the longest time. But as we were built crafts and machines and were able to get down deeper, guess what people found in the mid-70s? Springs of water in the depths of the ocean. Blasting water up through it. The Bible told us all about it. At least referenced it. Ecclesiastes 1.6, the wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. King Solomon wrote that about 3,000 years ago. But in case you didn't know, it wasn't until World War II that airmen discovered the jet stream circuits. And yet here is King Solomon literally giving you directions, and it is exactly how the air currents work. 
The Bible teaches us about practical living. Genesis 6.15, this is how you are to build the ark. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. You can research it all you want. Obviously, there are different dimensions that you can build for a boat. But if you are building a boat that is going to be withstanding pressure, as it's straining and stressing back and forth, there are dimensions that see ship builders understand as good, viable options if you're an engineer or you, your mind is wired that way. I'm going to read this because I don't do anything when it comes to building ships. God told Noah to use a length to depth ratio of 10 to 1. Later, shipbuilders would learn only by hard experience that such a ratio can best accommodate the stresses of the ocean. Interesting, is it not? Deuteronomy 23, 12 through 13, designate a place outside the camp. This is God speaking to Israel. Where you can go to relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your stuff. <laughs> Praise God for that. Now, you may not think that's significant. You're talking, about a, you're talking about millions of people living together. We're not talking about 100 people. You're talking about a total of Israel's population who are wandering the desert in the millions. And God is giving them wisdom through the scriptures that we now know is sound sanitation advice. And before World War I, do you know what killed more people in war? It wasn't bullets, it was disease. And many times that disease was based on open issues where people's stuff is too close to camp. And they're literally dying from contracted disease. The same thing happens, Deuteronomy, God says when you wash your hands, I don't have it for you, He says to wash your hands in running water. Why? Because still water is full of nastiness, germs. Yet we don't ever read the Bible and think to ourselves, wow, this is scientific. It's not a science book. And if you read it trying to, to understand the Bible purely from the terms of science, well, you're going to find yourself disappointed. But what you find is that as, in, as God reveals His glory through the Scriptures... Everything that he has to say is true. And as we grow in science and as we grow in philosophy, as we grow in the arts, as we grow in all these other areas of, of the world and our communities, our studies, you would think by now that we have grown to such a place that we could discount the Bible and disprove the Bible. But the exact opposite is happening. That as we grow in our understanding of science and physics and astronomy, what we are discovering is that the Bible holds true and even more true. That even beyond issues of salvation, 
Issues of you knowing God and understanding his character and nature. The very descriptions about the planet and the universe and germs are still holding true. Because the Bible is what? It's God breathed. And it reveals his glory. The Bible is incredible. I mean, it is incredible. Leviticus 17, 11 and verse 14. Scriptures tell us that the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Because the life of every creature is in its blood. That is why I have said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is its blood. Do you know that it wasn't but literally over a little over a hundred years ago that we discovered that if someone loses enough blood, they die. We didn't know the power that was in literally the life source of blood. In fact, our very first president, George Washington, he was out farming in, I forget what year it was, seven, late 1700s. He's out farming and it's snowing so bad and he's known for his punctuality. And he gets home after a long day of farming. But instead of changing out of his wet, snowy clothes, he goes straight to the dinner table. And he sits down in wet clothes. And he he persists the entire evening until he goes to bed. And he wakes up around 2 a.m., what doctors think was probably pneumonia, and he was having trouble breathing. And so his wife calls for the doctor, and the doctor comes, and guess what their solution was to do? Because we didn't understand this truth was to bleed him. This was common medical practice. Bloodletting thinking that if we just get rid of the if we get rid of the, enough blood and this body makes new blood well he'll be fine it seems like it would make logical sense and his condition condition got worse and so second doctor came and a third doctor came there's literally three doctors came and they bled him four different times over the course of about 36 hours and as you might know George Washington died one of the reasons he died is because he had literally lost so much blood. What does the Bible teach us? Well, literally, the scriptures tell us that there is life in the blood. And that's supported by the reality that when Jesus Christ hung on a cross for you and I, guess what he gave? He gave his very precious blood for you and I. The, the blood that the, the Bible teaches in Leviticus, that it's only by the blood being spilled that we have atonement for our sin. See, the, the Bible is like a puzzle when all the pieces coming together. It fits this incredible story, this incredible story of redemption, this incredible story that reveals God's glory and points us to the amazing God that we serve.
Now the question is, when we talk about trusting the Bible, we, we wanted to start a message out today that wasn't deep ministry. It wasn't this moment where you're going to come forward and say, Oh God, I give you my life. Although if you want to do that, you can. But literally begin to appeal to the mind that there are reasons for you to trust and believe that the scriptures are God-breathed. Now, it still requires faith. I can't literally sit here and tell you that, that God inspired men to write this and then you believe it. I can't do that for you. I'll never have enough evidence to make you believe. But that doesn't mean that there isn't evidence. We haven't even talked about Jesus fulfilling the Messianic prophecies. Over 300, might I add. Over the course of 4,000 years, 66 books and over 40 authors. How does something like that happen? Because the scriptures are God-breathed. They're amazing. What do we do with a message like this? If all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that you may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, if that is true, then what do we do with a message like this? It's simple. You walk away and you read it because it's God's word for you. You read it. You read it when you're having a bad day. You read it when you're having a great day. You read it when your marriage is at the best it's ever been. You read it when you're fighting with your spouse. You read it when you've got all the money you could ever hope for. And you read it when you don't have anything. You read it on your best day. You read it on your worst day. You read it when you get up. The Bible in Deuteronomy, the, 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 the teachers of the law were reminded to bind this law around their neck so that they would read it in the morning and then they would read it at night. Why? Because it's God's words to us. Far be it from us to take this holy word and to just casually, flippantly not care what God has to say to you and me. See, when you get into this thing, you maybe you've heard it before that, you know, you read the Bible, but you don't really read the Bible. If you've heard it said before, the Bible reads you. And that's why when you open these scriptures, there's shaping that begins to happen. I'm wrestling with this. I don't understand this. The Bible is producing questions inside of me. It's providing answers here and questions here. I feel convicted here. I feel burdened here. I feel all these things because the Holy Spirit works through that Bible to minister to you and to shape you and to draw you into God's perfect and holy presence. Don't pretend that you can have a deep relationship where you and God know each other. God's my bro. But you don't have a relationship with this Bible. It doesn't work that way. Let's be a people 
who trust that this is God's word for us and get into it. You don't know where to start? I can help you. A team member can help you. Ask the person next to you to help you. Start. Start reading. Start praying and ask for God to speak to you through it. He will. Stand to your feet.